Welcome to the EduGals podcast. We are your co-hosts, Rachel Johnson and Katie Atwell. We are here to bring you tips and tricks to help you integrate technology into your classroom. In this episode, Katie and I are going to be talking all about imposter syndrome. We're going to talk about the different types of imposter syndrome, how it can affect teachers, and some common triggers in the education world. Let's get started. We are going to start off with some news and updates from the Twitterverse and beyond. So our first piece of news is about Screencastify and a new feature within their Screencastify submit. So they have now added the ability to for students to create a video that uses the screen as well as the embedded webcam, which wasn't available before. I love that they've added this option now because you not only get to see their screen, but you also get to see their faces. So really, really great. Yes, I'm glad that they've done that. And our second piece of news has to do with Edpuzzles. So Explain Everything is this really, 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 really great app that I use on my iPad for creating my videos, my screencasting kinds of videos, because I love the ability to be able to write things down as I'm going through problem solving explanation or something like that. But what's really neat is now that Edpuzzle is now being integrated with Explain Everything. So you can make your Explain Everything video on your iPad, and then you can directly upload it to Edpuzzle from there. You don't have to put it onto your computer first and go through all of those different steps. Mm -hmm. So this is definitely great for efficiency and saving time. So check it out if you have an iPad. And um, yeah give it a go. And then our last sort of thing that I think we kind of need to celebrate a little bit is this is our 25th episode. Yay! (laughs) So quite a milestone that we've hit and worthwhile to celebrate and to celebrate you as our listeners, because without you, we would not have hit episode 25. It's so true. So thank you for listening. So that being said, we'll include links to both of those news articles in our show notes, and you can access our show notes at edugals.com slash 25. That's E-D-U-G-A-L-S dot com slash 25. And now on to our featured content. This week, Katie and I are going to be talking all about imposter syndrome. So we're taking a kind of different approach this week to talk about something that we know is so prevalent out there and yet not talked about. Yes. So the idea of imposter syndrome is this feeling that you're not, well, the way I see it is you're really good at something, but you're just not good enough. So it's this idea that you always have to keep getting better and better and better because you're never good enough. And it's really hard to kind of accept success or praise from others. It's always like, why are they praising me? Like, I'm not an expert. (laughs) I know nothing. (laughs) Which kind of sums up, I think, how we typically feel about 
technology, which is funny because now we have a podcast where we talk all about technology. I think that's a fair point to bring up, though, is we talked about creating a podcast for probably a year before we actually sat down and pressed record. Mm -hmm. And I think that's partly because, like a lot of people, we, we suffer from imposter syndrome. I don't know if suffer is the right word, right? But no. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. We we always kind of sat there and said, "Well, what do we have to offer?" And even though, you know, we we support teach we we supported teachers in our school day to day all the time, and people would come to us with questions and and you know, if we didn't have it, we'd find it, but we'd always support them. We still didn't feel like we truly had the capability and the knowledge to do a podcast. So I guess the purpose of this this week is just for others to know you're not alone. And, you know, you know enough. And if people are praising you, it's because you know a lot. And just kind of learn to embrace that and go with it and just do you. When did you first hear about the term imposter syndrome? Like, I'm, I'm actually kind of curious about that. So I only first heard of it as a, an official term when you mentioned it about, I don't know, five, six months ago. And then when you said it, I was like, oh, that makes sense. When did you first hear of it? I don't know, to be honest. I know it's something that on and off through my entire life I've experienced. And so it was really kind of neat when I finally heard that there was a term for it. It defined it. And I think by defining it, it almost helps you really recognize that yeah, it is a it is a legit feeling, but there are ways to overcome it and ways to kind of get around feeling that way. Yeah, ways to not let it define you. I think really I kind of first experienced it. This this is way way back, but when I first started grad school, and so like this was a long time ago when I first started my PhD, it was almost like walking into a lab. I'm like, who am I to think I can do research and, and solve these complex problems in science? Mm -hmm. And I would go to conferences and I'd present posters and I'd be talking to like all these world-class scientists, you know, having discussions about my work. And I always felt like a phony. And that's kind of followed me through like everything I've done. I mean, even now, like podcasting, like I feel like a phony sometimes. I, I know I recognize kind of what that feeling is now. Yeah. But it's, it's hard to shake. No, it's definitely hard to shake. And I think that's, but that's part of the reason why I'm glad we've moved forward with it anyhow with the podcast. Because like, you're always going to doubt yourself. So I think kind of taking that step to kind of overcome it and try not to let that rule your actions. Like that's, I think, important. And I'm glad we did this because I love this. So we kind of did a bit of digging in preparation for recording this episode and some reading and some research because, you know, we wanted to learn a little bit more about imposter syndrome and where it comes from. So as I was kind of reading some articles this week, I think one of the things that I found most surprising is that there's actually different categories of imposter syndrome. So many articles kind of define imposter syndrome in terms of five different types. The first type is the perfectionist, which I think is where I end up falling. You know, perfectionism and imposter syndrome really do go hand in hand. Yeah. And recognizing that we don't always have to be perfect in everything that we do, I think is pretty important. 
there's also the superwoman or superman or superperson, if we want to be inclusive, which is just about constantly like doing stuff and working harder and harder and harder. I mean, I fit in that one too. (laughs) (laughs) Where does it end? (laughs) I don't know if it does end. The third type, the natural genius. So there's you again. No, no, not at all. And see there, imposter syndrome coming out again, right? Yep. So these are the types of people who just really set their internal bar like impossibly high. So it's pretty similar to being a perfectionist in terms of the type, but slightly different. So it's the person who's like trying to always get A's or trying to always get the gold stars, basically. Yeah. There's the soloists, so people who think that they have to do everything on their own. And then the last type is the experts. So basically, they measure their competence on how much they know and what they know and what they can do. And so they kind of believe that they never know enough. So I, I thought that was really interesting in terms of that there are five different types. They're all very closely linked. And so I see parts of me in different categories. But you're right, there are five different types as to how they categorize it. I also found it interesting that it is more common in women than men. I mean, I'm not surprised because we always feel like we have something to prove, you know, the whole wage gap between men and women. And even if you look at high positions within companies, majority of them are held by men. And so I do feel like women feel like they have something to prove. Yeah, I came across one kind of interesting article that that did talk about that too. And it's about kind of why imposter syndrome hits women and even especially women of color much, much harder. And I think it's it's really kind of interesting take. And I mean, I guess I can see where it comes from. Yeah, it's just interesting to know how many others out there are busting their butts and doubting themselves so much when really they're rock stars. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And so part of why we wanted to talk about it is because a lot of educators and a lot of people in, you know, taking on some extra leadership and helping to train and and share knowledge with colleagues, it can be really hard when you're suffering from something like that. Not really suffering, I guess, but when when it's kind of holding you back. Um, I was like that for a long time um, until I realized, whatever, I just know what I know, I'll share what I know, and then we'll see where it goes. (laughs) <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, it's important to take a break and say, wait, I know enough and I'm willing to share what I have and that's enough. So what are some of the things that you do to overcome imposter syndrome? I think honestly, one of sort of the major things that's really kind of helped at least recently in recent years is just putting a label on it. So acknowledging that when I get those feelings that they're there but they, they don't define who I am. And so just, you know, taking that and taking that self-doubt and acknowledging it, but then getting over it. <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah, I think the first step is acknowledging perhaps why you're lacking that confidence or doubting yourself and then finding ways to move around it. But I mean, I think the other thing that, well, I know we both do it is just to continue my learning. 
Like I'm always afraid that I'm going to stop learning new things. And it scares me to think that I might stop learning new things. It's almost the fear of not further expanding my knowledge (laughs) that kind of drives me to keep going. Yeah, I'm always worried about becoming one of those teachers who just doesn't want to learn and grow anymore. I I feel like if I ever reach that point in education, that means it's time for retirement and I'm t- and I'm done because I'm like you. Like I I want to just keep learning and keep growing in this profession. I also find that as soon as I get bored, I start doubting myself even more. And so then I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to get bored. I'm going to make sure I'm busy and I'm learning and I'm expanding. And then that way, I'm not going to doubt myself. So I almost keep myself extra busy to make sure I don't go back into (laughs) (laughs) self-doubt. I think another sort of strategy that I find very, very helpful is celebrating even the little victories. And so even today, I ran two PD sessions, like the first, and they were identical content. The very first one, I had all these technical issues and it took a while to get started. I had to set up another laptop because my screen sharing wasn't working and like it was just, it was a bit of a gong show. <laughs> I mean, t- tech things happen, right? Yep, all and the time. It happens to the best of us. So I've, I've learned to roll with the punches in terms of that sort of thing. But then the following session later in the day went really, really well. Everything ran smoothly. Everyone was engaged. They were talking. They were asking questions and all the tech worked perfectly. So I think just kind of celebrating that, you know, I got over those tech hurdles and that everything went well eventually and then went really well later on in the day, I think is important to kind of stop and take a moment for that. And like not letting it get you down when the tech doesn't go well, because guess what? Wi-Fi crashes, programs freeze, servers can't handle volume. Those are all things that we've had happen already this school year. So guess what? You just go with it and you have to give yourself permission to to let that be okay. It's funny because one of our very, very first blog posts that we wrote was all about when the Wi-Fi goes down. Oh man, our school had so many Wi-Fi issues that year. <laughs> So yeah, if you want to if you want to see some early writing from Edugals, uh, you could go to our website and check out that blog post. We'll we'll link it in the show notes because it's a pretty good laugh. We talk <laughs> about the dinosaur game quite a quite a lot. So and the best part of the dinosaur game was they turned it off for student Chromebooks, and so I'd be sitting there on my teacher laptop playing the dinosaur game, waiting for the Wi-Fi, and all of my students were so upset. Oh, <laughs> priceless. <laughs> but even this year, we've we've had plenty of Ugh. technology issues. Even Google, like Google's gone down a couple times. They've had issues with Drive or different sort of pieces of the G Suite and things happen. I think it's, and I think one of the strategies we talked about in that blog post was having a, a good solid backup plan that doesn't rely on technology because... You know, you never know when things like that are going to happen. Now it's harder now with hybrid and kids at home, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, our latest error with Google is during Meet, the sound stops going through to my students. And so then they have to exit and rejoin so that they can hear me again. Oh, it's so bizarre. So today, all day throughout class, I'd have people dropping out and coming back in and dropping out and coming back in. And it was like, oh no. But I mean, you have to laugh. I must have looked ridiculous as I was talking and my lips are moving and the camera's on and they're like, (laughs) 
<laughs> what is Ms. Atwell saying? <laughs> but that's a good way to kind of ground yourself, let me tell you. I'm not worried about being an imposter when stuff like that happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's really important to just... Any any of those sort of things, right? You just laugh it off. It happens to all of us. Yeah. Doesn't mean you're a terrible teacher or anything. It's just life happens. Well, what other areas of being a teacher would you feel like imposter syndrome? So I think part of it and part of why we may also feel this way is, you know, the idea of I'm not good enough for this position type of a thing getting hired, having to do interviews, having a bad interview or, you know, anything. All of that stuff kind of comes in. It's almost like, uh, I think, at least where we are in terms of getting hired into a full-time position in our province, it's so tough for teachers and you get beaten down constantly that I think maybe like that's Possibly where a lot of feelings of feeling phony kind of start because you're constantly being rejected and told no and not getting positions and then having to supply teach for years and then long term occasional teach for years. And so I think that could be kind of a starting place on where those sorts of feelings kind of manifest from. And then on top of it, let's say your your main degree was in, I don't know. English or history, and then you have to go in and you have to teach a course that is completely different or isn't based on your area of expertise. Like that's setting you up right there for imposter syndrome because you're going to be sitting there thinking, I don't know anything. I don't know enough. Like, why am I teaching these kids about something that I barely know about? You know, that is one of my biggest fears because technically we could be, for one of our courses, be put into anything in the grade nine or 10 curriculum as a high school teacher. And I would feel like the biggest phony in the world if I was teaching a grade nine English class. Right? I'm not going to lie. Even the first time I did the careers course or the civics course, I sat there thinking, who am I to tell kids what it's like to go through and try to get university right now. Like, yes, I lived it, but it's diff a different system. I know nothing about the college pathway. I know very little about tech. And so, you know, having to have that steep learning curve for myself and invite people in who were good at that stuff. I mean, that's great, but like, it was a huge check on my confidence. Even for me last spring, when I got sections for teacher librarian, I feel like the biggest fraud in the world in the library. Who am I to, you know, be able to, to go in there and be the teacher librarian? I have a PhD in biochemistry. I don't know. It, it just, I, I actually felt like quite a fraud in there. I'll be honest. No. And, and I think it's common with teachers. I think because of the nature of our jobs, I really do think that many teachers and many good teachers lack the confidence in themselves to recognize how good they really are. And I think that's a lot of why people are so afraid to collaborate. I'm thinking you're probably right, because you don't want to look like the person who doesn't know anything. And you also don't think you have anything good enough to share with the world. Right. It's good enough for your students because you feel like you are okay in front of them because you know more than them. But when you're around other colleagues, like sometimes you don't feel like you are the expert. I find myself like if I'm in big meetings with a lot of people, like this is probably partly because I'm so introverted, but I have a hard time sharing my ideas because I'll be sitting there and thinking like, are they really good enough to share? 
Yep. Or is this going to sound stupid when I give this suggestion? And so usually I'll end up keeping them inside and kind of letting them sit and fester. And, you know, that's that's not always the good best strategy either. No, but it's it, it's true, though, because when you're in a room of so-called experts, you no longer feel like you're such a confident person. I think another place where those sort of feelings kind of manifest is even when you're teaching in a class and students ask you questions and you don't know what the answer is. Right. Early, early on in my career, I used to panic when that question came up. But as I kept going, I, you know, I kind of say to my students now, I don't have all the answers. I don't know everything. So if you have a question, let's work through it. Let's look it up together. Let's find that answer. Yeah, I think it's really important for us to, if we don't know the answer, to be completely honest and transparent. And yeah, that that's what I do too. Sometimes even I get caught off guard. Even after teaching for over 10 years now, a student will ask this like really incredible question and you just sit there and you're like, oh my goodness, I don't know what the answer is. Also, you're sitting there thinking, I wouldn't have had that question as a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. Like even a colleague of mine messaged me the other day. She was in class with her students and she's like, my students have asked this question and I'm starting to like think about it now and I don't know if I know the answer. And I was looking at the question and I'm like, oh my goodness, I don't think I know the answer too. And so we were kind of having this back and forth discussion about what she should tell the student because we didn't know the answer. It was, it was just, it was pretty funny. And it's also, it's humbling, but in a good way. I've come to like accept it now and accept saying like, I don't know the answer. Let's go look it up. Let's go figure it out together. Yeah. Or even just throw it back on them. You go figure it out and you tell me tomorrow. <laughs> I wonder if that's why in a lot of professional development or a lot of staff meetings or any of those kind of big type of gatherings, I mean, we're not doing big types of gatherings right now because of COVID, but I wonder if that's why no one really talks and no one really says anything or asks questions. Yeah, it could be a lot of the self-doubt, not wanting to feel stupid, because there are sometimes. Now, thankfully, I'm new at the school that I'm at, so I've been asking all the stupid questions this year. <laughs> <laughs> but like, if they make comments, I'm like, okay, so what do you mean by that? Because I have no idea what you're talking about here, and I don't know if it's because I'm new. <laughs> and so now every time they, ask, they, they make statements... And I have this face. They're like, yes, Katie, do you have a question? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. But there you go. But then I get the answer, right? And then I kind of know what's happening. And I know if it's because I missed something or if it's because it's just a new school. I've kind of noticed that a lot recently, which is why I said I wonder if that's the reason why. I, I've tried some different strategies with professional development because I've been doing a lot of that this year in terms of my role since I'm in a coaching role. And so we did one session where we thought because of the kinds of situations where we're in this year, we wanted to create a space for people to be able to come, ask questions, like socialize, chat, nothing sort of like super formal, like a, a typical professional development session would be. And so we did that and we thought, oh, we would share out some little quick ideas as well if, if the conversation wasn't going. 
conversation was not going at all. (laughs) Do you know what? We are all exhausted. And we don't want to admit how much we don't know. And so I've discovered like that those kind of learning opportunities, they have to be very structured in order to get any kind of conversation going. I almost feel maybe once quad one or two is done, there might be more discussion-based learning. But until people can actually wrap their heads around the various aspects, particularly because it's a new LMS, there's going to be so much, like right now, there's so much self-doubt. There's no confidence in most teaching staff. Yeah, so I think... In terms of our message right now, yes, teaching's different. You know, maybe you have to learn a new LMS. Maybe you have to learn all of these new tech tools that you don't know how to use. But I think what you really need to keep in your your mind is while these thoughts of self-doubt are going through there, that you know how to teach and you know what you're doing with kids. So as long as you're focusing on that, that's the important part. The rest will come. And, and also know that you're not alone. There are so many of us out there who are just getting by. We're treading water and we're making mistakes and we're learning from them. And I think that's okay. It's, I could see how it's particularly hard for those who are so far in their careers that they're really close to retirement. And now, you know, this comes in and now they're like scrambling, feeling as if they're new teachers again, and they're like, what's happening? But honestly, like everybody is in the same boat. We're all frustrated, we're all tired, and we're all learning together. I think you really hit uh, the nail on the head there by saying that this year is like you're a brand new teacher again. And I I remember how tired I was as a new teacher. (laughs) (laughs) It does feel similar, except I'm older. (laughs) (laughs) So not recovering as well. No, the rebound is not so great. (laughs) No, it's so true, though. It is like we have all been thrown in as brand new teachers this year. Yeah, so just give yourself some permission to learn. Don't be hard on yourself. Don't make yourself out to be stupid or feel stupid about it. Because nothing is easy, especially when you don't feel like you have a choice. And when it's all like brand new learning and not very intuitive. I get it. Oh, and do you know what? I just read a tip on a website and I thought immediately of you. It's find a colleague who's willing to be your imposter syndrome co-conspirator. I love that term. (laughs) Tell me more. It's essentially just find another teacher you can be vulnerable with and say, do you know what? I don't know what I'm doing. And I feel like, Rachel, you are my (laughs) (laughs) co-conspirator. Oh, that makes me all warm and fuzzy. Well, it's so true. Like we kind of connected and we've done so much work around technology and learning. And I don't have a problem going up to you and saying, oh, I suck. (laughs) Remind me why I'm doing this or how to do this because I can't remember it all. Yeah, no, I love that. And you need, what did you call it again? Co-conspirator. I usually call them just my critical friends, but um, (laughs) I like that terminology way, way better. Yeah, it kind of makes me feel like I'm up to no good. And I'm not going (laughs) to lie, part of me is like, yes. Rabble rouser. <laughs> I have to say, like, I've, I've had a couple of people over the past several years, like when I first became a department head, oh my goodness, the imposter syndrome was, was strong then. I had so much self-doubt about my ability to be able to be a leader in our school community. And I remember when I found out that I got that position, I ran down the hall to my my very good 
critical friends. And I was like, what did I just do? (laughs) (laughs) I love that that was your reaction. (laughs) I don't know what I'm doing, right? And so, but you learn and like having that person that you can talk to about anything whenever you're you're experiencing that self-doubt or just want to brainstorm ideas or learn together. Like, I think that's really important to have in your life. Yeah, you really do need to find your person. It makes such a big difference professionally and personally. And they don't have to be in your same department. Like, don't think that just because you're, I don't know, ESL teacher, you need to find another ESL teacher. I actually find, like, I'm glad I have the perspective of you as a science teacher, because I think that you really balance me out well as a language teacher. And so I kind of like the dynamic that we have. And we think so differently that I I really love the balance. I love the balance too. I think we we do work really, really well together. And yeah, it's like two opposite spectrums, uh, ends of the spectrum, right? So I agree. It doesn't have to be someone in your department at all. And sometimes, in fact, it's better if it's not. Okay. So a few other things that might kind of trigger or make you feel like you aren't good enough that I think are important to talk about. TPAs. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> yeah, having, having an administrator come and observe your teaching. I am not going to lie. It makes me feel like I'm on the spot. It makes me feel like I know nothing about what I'm doing and now I'm going to doubt every single move I have because I don't know what that facial expression means or what are they writing on their paper back there because now I think that they're writing something that I've done terribly wrong. I think we need to point out that TPA... I don't know if that's a common acronym that's used around the world. So TPA for us just stands for Teacher Performance Appraisal. So in our province and our school boards, we get appraised once every five years. And so the process is that you you have this pre-observation meeting with your principal or vice principal, depending on who's doing your appraisal. You go through, like you have to put together so much stuff. I'm going to keep this PG rated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to put together like lesson plans and like all this evidence of how great a teacher you've been over the past five years, basically. And then present that, have this like hour long discussion with your administrator. And then they come in, observe two different classes. So on two different days, and you, you, you know, you just kind of just sit there crossing your fingers going, I hope my kids are good. I hope my kids are good. Yep. And then you end it by having a post observation meeting where you have to like completely dissect everything you just did in the classroom. And it is so, yeah, it's so stressful. So that's one thing. (laughs) That totally is. There's so many different sort of pieces to that process that, yeah, you could could definitely be doing a lot of self-doubt there. And so I think that's really important to recognize. Um, Another thing is talking to parents sometimes about their Mm. children. Parent-teacher interviews. I'm not going to lie. The nerves are real because I'm always like, they're probably far more intelligent than I am. They're going to put me on the spot and ask me about why I do something and I'm going to feel awfully silly. So I try to be prepared and I try to kind of think about the questions that they might ask me ahead of time. But I've also learned over the years, just be yourself and try to be honest with your students about why you do things because you'll find that the parents have less questions when you're honest with your students. 
I, so I had one particular year that I was super nervous about parent teacher interviews. And that was the year when I was like really diving deep into project based learning. And a lot of we were or hearing a lot of complaints because it wasn't the typical teaching style. It wasn't because we were doing project based learning terribly. It's just that we changed the meaning of what school was for the students. And so they were uncomfortable with it. They were going home expressing their uncomfort with, with the model. And then so we we were really, really worried that parent-teacher um, interview night. And so I remember just making sure I was so prepared. I printed out, like I, I went through my, because it was for an IB chemistry course. So I went through my IB chemistry document and like I highlighted everywhere and put sticky notes everywhere about where IB like really strongly correlates with project-based learning. And then I did, I had all these other articles and research and stuff like that ready and I didn't need any of it. It's just, it, <laughs> it was funny. I went through the whole process of like being prepared to defend myself because I was having all this self-doubt because they were uncomfortable. Yeah. That's what the biggest part of that was. So another thing that I think tends to make me doubt myself is when I take a course, whether it be an AQ, something that I'm interested in learning about, I don't like it. <laughs> um, I always feel like I know nothing. So I took my junior AQ course. So AQ means additional qualifications for those that don't know um, our terminology or lingo or abbreviations, whatever you want to call them. It's, it's funny you say that. So my husband always complains that I explain some acronyms or abbreviations, <laughs> but not the ones that he doesn't know. So apparently <laughs> I'm really good at giving out like the terms for each of those acronyms for the ones that I always do. But if it's a word he had like an acronym he's never heard before I just assume he knows it's so thank that's you that's amazing <laughs> <laughs> but anyway I yeah so I took my junior AQ so that's your qualification for teaching grades four to six now I took that just um, it's one of those kind of qualifications I need in case I ever decide I want to go down the admin route. I don't know if I want to go there, but I just kind of wanted to get it out of the way. And this summer was a good opportunity. Man, <laughs> I know nothing about teaching grades four to six. Oh. It was eye-opening for sure. It, I, I don't know if I could. I have a lot of respect for elementary teachers because I don't know if I could teach elementary. I just, I really appreciate taking that course. I, I found it pretty eye-opening and it's weird in terms of timing because it's actually coming in quite useful this year in my role because my role is from kindergarten all the way up to grade 12 now. For me, the course where I really felt, well, so it's funny. So I'm going to give you two examples. The first course was doing the Facing History and Ourselves course all about the Indigenous history in Canada because I am not an expert. And that kind of pushed me out of my comfort zone because it was learning that I thought was important for me and my journey there. And that was terribly uncomfortable for for me. There were so many people who had done so much already to learn about it. And I was just like, oh, okay, well, at least I'm here and, and you know, I'm learning, but it's so hard. Um, and then the other time, and this is going to seem funny to you, when I was doing my ESL specialist. <laughs> so English as really? a second language. Yes. Isn't that funny? It is because I see you as an expert in that field. And so... I think part of it was there's not a lot of training beyond that specialist. Like there's things I can do to continue my learning, but it almost maxes out at that in terms of acknowledging the learning 
And, and like, I'm sitting here thinking, I don't know enough. I need to keep learning. How can you tell me I'm a specialist? And, and so it's a bit of a internal debate on that one. No, that's really interesting. I, I never thought about AQ courses. And even when I was doing my master's in education, I had one course where, oh my goodness, I felt like such a fraud. <laughs> it was all about reflective practices. So that one really put me out of my comfort zone. I, I feel like whenever you're kind of put out of your comfort zone, yeah. that's where some of those feelings do start to creep in quite a bit. I learned a lot, but that was a tough course for me, for sure. So here's another one, social media. Yes, there's so much in the social media and we've really kind of experienced it as teachers like pretty bad over the past, I would say, couple of years. So we had a lot of our contract was up and so there was labor negotiations, which were not going well. If you're an Ontario educator, you know what we're talking about. And so 2019-2020 school year, we were on strike for a few days. We had rotating strikes, so that was hard. And then there was all the kind of bashing of teachers in social media. And it, it really makes you feel like it, it, at times it made me feel like maybe I'm not smart. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. I'm obviously, I can't be an expert. Like I can't be somebody that, I don't know. Anyhow, and it's happening now with the return to school and the politics behind that plan. It's, it's hard. And it's also hard, too, when you see this picture-perfect representation on social media. Because there's a lot of educators out there who, who give off this image of perfection. I'm not perfect as an educator, I'm going to be honest. Like, I make mistakes all the time. I try something and I fail. And, and I kind of embrace that as part of the process. And I'm not going to tell you otherwise. Like, I, I am not a perfect educator. Oh, no, I fail miserably, too. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just you. It's all of us. We, we, y you could try planning the perfect lesson and it could just totally flop. But I agree. If you go, like, there's even terminology for it, right? The Pinterest classroom. Oh, yeah. I stay away. <laughs> you just see these beautiful images of these rooms decorated so extravagantly. That's not what it should be. I think that comes back to the perfectionist, though. The perfectionist type of imposter syndrome. Your room does not need to be perfect. And in fact, I've seen a lot of really great advice out there where you shouldn't decorate your room at all. You should let your students help you decorate your room. Well, right now during COVID, we can't really decorate anyhow. But I, I yeah. I think the idea is try to remove yourself. So to be honest, like I'm not on Twitter as often as I used to be. And I can't go on Facebook, which I know is old technology. I recognize it. But I have to kind of shy away from some of it because I don't want that influence on my life and my well-being right now. And so taking a break is normal and it's okay. And nobody's picture perfect. Yeah, tech breaks are good. I, I have a hard time getting off of Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> But I get all excited. I don't know. Whenever someone likes or retweets something and they're, I see them as like a big name in terms of education or, or anything like that, I get so excited that they've liked or retweeted my tweet. And I feel like I'm not worthy of that. You stop that. So I think, <laughs> no, and you, you have to just recognize that, yes, you are worthy and that there's a reason they're liking or retweeting what you're putting out there for the world. So, you know, it's just about kind of stopping yourself and saying, okay, 
Don't be stupid. You're worth it. Well, I feel like that was us as we were watching the downloads when we first started doing the podcast. (laughs) We kind of, we recorded episodes and, you know, we got them out there week by week and we were like, nobody wants to listen to us. Like, why would anybody listen? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And now here we are at episode 25. How amazing. Yes. And we know we put this out on Twitter a few weeks ago because we are recording a little bit ahead of time. But yeah, we just celebrated 1500 downloads. And I think that's really important for us to just take a second and celebrate that. Yeah, no, it's amazing. But yeah, so I think really what we wanted to do with this episode is to let you know it's normal to feel like you don't know enough and to feel like you doubt yourself, but don't let it affect you. I think you need to find ways to move past it and embrace your expertise and, and try to be confident because you really are a good educator and you're a good mentor. Consider being mentors to younger teachers. What we'll do, we'll post a couple of articles on our show notes, which can be found at edugals.com slash 25. And then that way you can kind of check out a little bit more about imposter syndrome. We also found some articles that relate directly to educators and how it can affect your practice and some of the triggers that you may experience. And so we'll be sure to link those in as well. And if you feel like sharing even experiences you've had in terms of imposter syndrome, or if there's a scenario that we haven't presented today, we would love to hear your stories. I know that's kind of scary to put yourself out there for the world and I mean, it was a little scary for us to do this today, too. But there's a couple ways you can do that. So you can go on to our Flipgrid at edugals.com slash Flipgrid. And we get that maybe you don't want to put something like this on there, which is totally fine, because then you can go to our website and leave us a message on edugals.com. If you have a colleague or friend that you think would benefit from listening into this episode or any of our others, feel free to share it. And if you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting app. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of our EduGals podcast. Show notes for this episode are available at edugals.com. That's E-D-U-G-A-L-S dot com. We'd also love to hear your feedback, so leave us a message on our website. And if you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe and consider leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Until next time, keep being awesome and try something new.